As you have your outlines in front of you, I'm sure you're looking at them and kind of seeing that it's a bifold and wondering how long we're going to be here this morning. I've been asked several times if we're going to be here till after lunch, but no, we're not. <laughs> it's by my wife's encouragement because she likes to write notes. And so she said, can you make it a little larger because I really like to take a lot of notes and I think everybody else might want to do that too. And I said, sure, why not? So if it's a little bit out of the ordinary, so be it. And uh, hopefully this morning you'll be blessed. just want to give you kind of a background of how I came to talk about and uh, just teach on this. Some time ago when Steve was teaching, I can't remember um, how many months ago, but something stuck in my mind about God's grace. And it was at that time that I started thinking about the song Amazing Grace. And as I thought about the song Amazing Grace, I thought about how many times have I been to a function, uh, sadly, uh, mostly uh, a memorial service, that people will sing the song, they'll print out the words and we'll sing the song and everybody is there uh, just enjoying the song. But how many people really understand the background of the song, the depth of the song, the meaning of the song behind it? And so I started thinking of how I would come across and talk to people who may have sang the song for many years of their lives and have no idea what it's about. God directed my thoughts and all of a sudden he said, you know, Ken, I really want you to focus in on God's grace. And as I looked at the song Amazing Grace, it actually contains the gospel in it. I'm going to show you that this morning. It's amazing that we've had this song for over 200 years and it's sung all over the world. But this morning I hope to give you a little historical background, some biblical foundation, but I'm not going to be an exhaustive study in the subject of grace because it's endless. I mean, you could live your whole life. There's been volumes and books and things written on grace that uh, far outnumber what I can cover this morning. But what I just want to do is I want to give a foundation of grace and how it adapts and fits into the song. An atheist once said, If there really is a God, may he prove himself by striking me dead right now. When nothing happened, the atheist proudly announced, You see, there is no God. His friend kindly responded, responded, You've only proven that he is gracious. One day during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to, Christian, to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities such as incarnation. Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form through the resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of returning from death. So the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis, hearing the debate, wandered into the room. says, what's all the commotion about? And he heard the reply from his colleagues, we're discussing Christianity and its unique contribution among the world religions. Upon hearing the answer given, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he writes, the notion of God's loving love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. 
Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. In a 2001 Reader's Digest, Muhammad Ali, the world-famous boxer, was asked what faith meant to him. And Ali replied, it means a ticket to heaven. One day we're all going to die and God's going to judge us, our good and our bad deeds. If the bad deeds outweigh the good, we go to hell. If the good deeds outweigh the bad, we go to heaven. That's what many people believe, but that's not what God's Word says. John Stott said, The gospel is the good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of religion of Jesus is the cross of grace, not the scales of the law. Pretty amazing. Grace starts with God, continues with God, and ends with God. Anything we do is in response to what God has already done for us. It follows that even after salvation, by grace through faith, we remain forever debtors to the dep- and dependent upon God's all-sufficient grace. It's funny how sometimes you know, you'll be working on a message and in the middle of the night God will wake you up and have some thought to go through your mind. So I was up at 4.30 this morning thinking. And I thought, I can't remember all this. So I got up and I started writing things down. And this is what kind of came to my heart. Amazing Grace is a song that when the melody is played, even if the words are not sung, it is readily recognized. Wouldn't you agree? It's a song that is played at countless events and ceremonies. It's been played on all types of instruments. And maybe the best known, it's been played on the bagpipes. Many of us see that in the St. Patrick's Day parades across America. Fantastic. I love it on the bagpipes. It is somewhat universal. It crosses religious barriers as well as political, social, economic, and cultural boundaries. Played most often at funerals, it is a staple within the mainstream of Christian churches. It is sung with and without understanding, as I said before. Most people know the first four stanzas of the song, and it would seem the author wrote it in such a way as to emphasize his identity, his confession, and revelation of his own need for forgiveness. It is a song with deep roots in its origin, a song that was meant to give a message to the hopeless and bring comfort to the hopeful, a song that when sung in its entirety brings out the depth and breadth of not only the author's heart, but was written so that all who sing it realize their own standing before a holy and just God. There is no other God in mind within the words of this song other than his Savior. It was and is the writer's intention and testimony to direct the singer's thoughts towards the reality of his or her true standing before God and the undeserved and unlimited grace that can be received when they put their trust in Christ. This is truly God's amazing grace. St. Augustine once wrapped a powerful thought in vivid imagery when he said, God always pours His grace into empty hands. No one could have emptier hands than John Newton, who is the author of this song. Newton was born in London in 1725, the son of a commander of a merchant ship which sailed the Mediterranean. When John was 11, he went to sea with his father and made six voyages with him before the elder Newton retired. Some of us have children and grandchildren that might be 11 years old. Can you imagine going out to sea at that age? 
1744, John was impressed or pressed into service on the man of war, the HMS Harwick, in the British Navy, the Royal Navy. Finding conditions on board intolerable, he deserted, but was soon recaptured and publicly flogged and demoted from midshipman to common seaman. His father commanded a merchant ship and was always at sea. His mother, who raised him as best as she could, teaching him the scriptures and sacred songs when he was young. But sadly, his mother died just before his seventh birthday. And it would be his father's footsteps in which John would follow. Newton lost his first job in the merchant office because of his unsettled behavior and impatient of restraint, a pattern that would persist him for years. He spent his latter teen years at sea before he was pressed ganged aboard the HMS Harwick in 1744. Newton rebelled against the discipline of the Royal Navy and deserted once again. He was caught, put in irons, and flogged. He eventually convinced his superiors to just discharge him from the slave ship, espousing free-thinking principles. He remained arrogant and insubordinate and lived with moral abandon. Now this is his quote. I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. He took up employment with a slave trader named Clough, who owned a plantation of lemon trees in the island off West Africa. But he was treated cruelly by Clough and the slaver's American mistress as well. Soon Newton's clothes turned to rag, and Newton was forced to beg for food. Then in March of 1748, somewhere in the middle of the North Atlantic, grace arrived. The hand of God rescued a shipwrecked soul. A violent storm had engulfed the small sailing ship. All hands were awake. Voices were shouting with urgency. Water was beginning to flood and flood down into the hull. Then something remarkable happened. Newton began to pray. Later in his writings, he would surrender his later he would say his life to Jesus and eventually become a pastor. He preached the gospel until the vulnerable age of 81. And then it goes on and tells you about Newton's conversion. One of the things he writes as one of the writers is he remembered a proverb that his mother taught him, Proverbs 1. It is a certain section, 24 to 27. I'll read that for you and how it fit where he was. Verse 24 says, But since you refuse to listen when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Sounds like a pretty appropriate psalm that God impressed upon his heart at that particular time. As Newton's life continued to grow, so did his faith. Newton especially loved crafting sermons and hymns. And reflecting on his life as a slave trader and his conversion to Christ, John Newton wrote and cherished this, wrote the cherished hymn that we all sing today. Today, shoppers at Amazon.com can choose from nearly 4,000 separate renditions of John Newton's old hymn. It's been around for over 200 years, 
As I said, it comes in every style, crosses every border, reaches, and in every year. When it announced, when it when it's announced at church, I'm having trouble because I'm having different glasses this morning. Thank you for being patient. When it's announced at church, people stand a little taller to sing it. They lift their voices a bit higher. And some feel, just for a moment, they are catching a glimpse through the gates of heaven. Literally hundreds of hymnals have been published and got out of print, yet amazing grace can be found in every single one of them. It's believed that one of the reasons that this hymn has been so singularly loved and enduring is that every single verse conveys some powerful element of God's truly amazing grace. Some years later, his song would be attached to what some believe was an old African sorrow chant from the time he spent on the slave ships. And it was set to that melody. However, whenever you look up the song, it'll often say, words by John Newton, melody unknown. Newton himself contributed 280 of the 348 texts in what is called the All Me Hymns. The first known recording of the song was made by the Wisdom Sisters in 1926. And there are currently 972 known musical arrangements of the hymn. That's how one of the best-loved hymns in all the world first appeared in print. And our love for this hymn suggests that if nothing else, we understand our need for God's grace, our lack of deserving it, and God's abundance in giving up this grace to those who call upon His name. I just wanted to give you a background, a little historical background and where the song manifested from. Let's see how many of you can finish this phrase. If it sounds good to be true, class, it usually is. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. There's no such thing as a free... And there is no pain, or excuse me, there is no gain without... I gave it away. And God helps those who... You know, there's a lot of people who think that's a a, a verse in Scripture. They do. Everything about the American way of life teaches us this simple truth. In life, you get what you earn. You get what you work for. You get what you pay for. There's nothing wrong with that. And that should be the American way. However, the problem is many people think the same way they relate to their paycheck as they do to God's grace. But God does not relate to us on the basis of our goodness. He relates to us on the basis of His grace. In your outline, you see it there. It says, apart from grace, you cannot know God. Apart from grace, you cannot understand God. Apart from grace, you cannot relate to God. And apart from grace, you cannot live for God. Grace is such a common phrase used that we have churches named after it. We have ministries, radio, TV programs. We have music, cities, towns, roads, addresses, retreat places. The word grace has been included in a multitude of uses, some honoring and some not so honoring. It's no wonder we sometimes take God's grace for granted. But John Newton didn't. 
and neither should we. The word grace is used over 270 times in the New Testament. Again, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey says, The world thirsts for grace in ways it does not even recognize. And he goes on, Little wonder the hymn Amazing Grace edged its way onto the top ten charts 200 years after its composition. But he says, But what is grace? Paul summed it up. It's countless virtues by calling them exceeding riches in Ephesians 2.7. That's what we're going to use as our context and our foundation. Here are some of the riches that are spelled out. If you're opened to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll go through those just part of it, and then we'll continue. Ephesians chapter 2. Grace reached out to us when we were dead in our sins and headed to hell. Ephesians 1, 2, 1 through 4. Ephesians 4, God loved us. Ephesians 2, 5, God gave us life. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, God has secured our future. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God has secured our salvation. And Ephesians 2, 10, God has, is equipping the believers to fulfill His promise. God's grace is not only amazingly rich, but it's also free. Yancey points out that grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. If you notice, when you're going through Scripture, the Apostle Paul, in all his addresses, as he begins each letter, starts with these words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and through our Lord Jesus Christ with the exception of First and Second Timothy, which he adds grace and he adds mercy. Now, if we believe, which I do, that God is breathing this into Paul's life, there's a reason and a purpose why Paul used every opening to address the churches with his letter. And I believe that if it's inspired by the Spirit, then there's something we need to look at in each greeting. The greeting is more than just a formality. It was a hope, a desire of the apostle to the audience that he was writing. So this is how we start before we get into our message. Just a foundation. I hope it wasn't boring. I hope you understood some of the history behind it. I know in doing the research, it just was eye-opening to me. There's so much written on John Newton and there's so much he accomplished. The amazing thing too also was is if you remember, some years ago we had a movie come out called Amazing Grace. It was about John Wilberforce and the slaves and so forth. John Newton was a, was a guiding force behind Wilberforce to drive all that situation that uh, took him into Parliament and eventually um, abolished the slavery trade. So John Newton's an important character. Well, let's look at the first part of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I titled this Divine Grace. The captivating principle of grace is exaltation of the author of grace. In Ephesians 2.4 it says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It's by His grace you have been saved. Jesus constantly demonstrated His grace to the people around Him. He showed grace to a thirsty woman at the Sumerian well. He lavished grace upon a woman at the temple courtyard who was caught in adultery. He showered grace upon Peter who abandoned him in his hour of need. And there are countless other examples throughout Scripture that show of His grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, John MacArthur writes this, Here we have one of the most comprehensive statements about grace in Scripture. Here's what it says. God is able or as powerful as capable to make all grace abound to you in order that always having all sufficiency sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's pretty inclusive. Let's go down the list. Grace to understand the Word. Grace to wisely apply the Word. Grace to overcome temptation. Grace to overcome sin. Grace to endure suffering. Grace to endure disappointment. Grace to endure pain. Grace to obey the Lord. And grace to serve Him effectively. Grace through all aspects of life. Is it any wonder that he calls it down in verse 14 of this very same chapter, surpassing grace? Because grace surpasses every need. It's difficult as people when we're going through circumstances and situations that we think that God has the grace to get us through this. But God's Word promises that. God's grace also exists in the past, the present, and the future. Turn with me to Romans 3.21. It says, But now the righteous of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Wow. How does grace affect the past, the present, and the future? In Ephesians 2, 1-3, we see that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We have been justified by God's grace. Romans 5.8. If we turn there, we see. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, 
Do not present your members as an instrument of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Presently, we are saved from the power of sin. That's the, that's the verse I just read, was chapter 6. Also, in verse 7 through 10, Ephesians 2. So that in this coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do, you, do we understand that? Those of us who call upon his name that we have works that have been prepared beforehand? God's grace is also extended to the future. We are saved ultimately from the presence of sin in the glorification process. That's our destiny to completion. We're saved from the penalty past. We're saved from the present, the power. And we are saved to the future, the presence of that sin. That is God's amazing grace. One writer writes, A moment of grace can change a life. In fact, a moment of grace can change an eternity. The captivating presence of grace is the first element of God's amazing grace revealed in John Newton's hymn. That's why he says at the end of that verse, how sweet the sound of that amazing grace. One writer describes this, describes this grace in an acronym. G stands for the gift, which is the principle of grace. R stands for the redemption, the purpose of grace. A stands for the access, the privilege of grace. And C stands for the character the product of grace, and E stands for eternal life, which is the perfection of God's grace. Secondly, we have the second stanza that saved a wretch like me. I call this forgiving grace, the compassionate purpose of grace through the redemption. Without mincing words in the second stanza of this song, John Newton admits that it was God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like himself. Let's see how wretched he really was. To understand this wonder of grace through his eyes, we need to have some knowledge of how he describes his wretchedness. Newton wrote, My daily life was a course, was course of the most terrible blasphemy and profaneness. I don't believe that I have ever met since or now, so daring a blasphemer as myself. No content with common profanities and cursing. I daily invented new ones. And of course, <laughs> he spent a good part of his life as a captain of a slave ship, trading in human cargo. His soul was deep in exile, farther away than any ship could have carried him. And Newton was, by his own admission and definition, a wretched person. 
When I say that word, what in your mind do you think of when you hear the word wretch? It's a pretty descriptive word. I mean, there's not not too much wiggle, wiggle room in that word of wretchedness. When we sing that, some of us belt it out with a smile on our face. Some of us have no idea what we're saying. But the truth is that each one of us is every bit a wretch as John Newton was. Romans 3, 10 and 12, we know this. No one is righteous, not, if, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Wow. It's pretty straightforward. In his portrayal and in his writing, John Newton had an identity crisis. Before he was saved, that's the type of person he was. When he finally looked and was penning this song, he finally understood his standing before a holy God. God requires perfection. And in his current state, he was far from that. I would like to argue with anybody here in this room if you're perfect. Because if you are, I'd like to talk with you about it. Because I'm looking for a perfect person. There is only one, will only be ever one. And the only way that we're perfected is to have an identity crisis, to understand that we are wretched like he was, and that we need God's grace to pull us out, pull us out of that miry clay and set us on a new path. Paul, even the great apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, says this, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body? That's, the body is subject to this death. In the Living Translation, it says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? The ESV says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the New American Standard says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? It's funny, performers in more recent decades sometimes make slight changes to this second verse. They think it's too harsh. So they change it to, they saved and strengthened me. They saved a soul like me. Or that they saved and set me free. Newton, when he was writing it, knew exactly what he was saying. He was reflecting the proper perception of himself as an outcast and miserable in relation to a holy and just God. As when he was enslaved at Sierra Leone in prison, he recognized how far he had fallen. Here's the problem. The problem is that we compare ourselves with others, and then we determine whether we're good or bad or indifferent as they are. The proper way to view ourselves is in comparison between ourselves and a holy God. He demands perfection of which none of us have or could ever have, no matter how hard we try. Newton writes, I am not what I ought to be. 
I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I once was to be, or once used to be. And that's by God's grace that I am who I am. He realized that. Thirdly, we have, I once was lost, but now I am found, which I, close with, which I call saving grace. The changing power of grace. In each one of our lives, we know this word, sanctification. We're all in process. Guess what? None of us here this morning will ever be good enough and perfect enough. But you need to allow God to work in your life. That's the abuse of grace sometimes. As Paul writes, shall grace abound so that I can continue in sin? He says, no. That's an abuse of God's grace. John Newton eloquently described his changing power of grace in this third stanza. I once was lost, but now I am found. Like the ex-convict he was in England, John Newton experienced a radical transformation thanks to the changing power of God's grace. But it didn't happen overnight. Those who love the story behind Amazing Grace sometimes imagine Newton experiencing his moment of grace, ordering, ordering the ship full of stern and quickly sitting down to pen these verses of Amazing Grace. That did not happen. History tells us a slightly different story. The story of a slave trader docking in Liverpool and then promptly signing on for another voyage to Africa. There he traveled from slave factory to slave factory, buying slaves, storing them on ships just like planks of wood. He sailed to the New World with as many as 200 slaves packed into shelves in the hull of the ship. On many voyages, as much as one-third of the men, women, and children died. And you know what they did with that? They threw them overboard. Because they're not worth anything. During that time, most believers did not see slavery as an evil thing. Several years had passed before Newton abandoned the slave trade to become a pastor. But all the while... He was reading his Bible and learning to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit more clearly as time went on, and slowly his view began to change. He started to see the world through the eyes of the Father and to be led by the heart of Christ. He experienced a dawning horror about the true evil of his occupation. Twenty-five years later, Newton would finally pen the words to the most beloved hymn of all time, And in 1788, he published a 10,000-word confessional pamphlet, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, in which he confessed his own part in the trade and openly denounced its practice. He wrote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I once was an active member in a business which my heart now shudders. The transformation that John Newton experienced wasn't a fluke. It wasn't unique to him, nor was it by his own inner strength or good intention. Rather, it came about because of an inward work of the Holy Spirit. So his transformation didn't happen overnight. I know there are people here in this room that immediately had a transformation in their life. 
Some of us took a little bit longer time. Some of us are still in process. Some of us are still weighing the cost. In reality, we are still experiencing the changing power of grace. Not until God has fully transformed will we ever be complete. Here, in this life, it's a process. But it all begins when we realize that we are lost and blind. As Newton wrote, I once was lost, and now I can see. The Apostle Paul, on his road to Damascus, was in the same way. He was actually blinded physically. But after God opened his eyes, he began to understand the depths of God's saving grace. I pray that those of you who are still seeking this morning would open your hearts to that saving grace. Because then and only then will you understand what you've been listening to, maybe for weeks or months or years. You see, you can't understand these things with your own intellect. It takes God's changing power to get to that point. So we've looked at God's divine grace, God's forgiving grace, God's saving grace. Finally, the one that applies to us as we sit here this morning, living grace. The confident provision of God's grace was blind, but now I see. In verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Further down in Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Galatians 5.22-23, familiar verses, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And finally, familiar verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's look at that workmanship that God has in store. Paul begins by saying, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The words in God in the Bible are very important because I believe that they are divine. I believe that when we study the passage, we need to take time to look at the words in this passage. The words in the first part of this are vital to understanding the importance and meaning. First of all, I want to look at the word workmanship, which means that which is made, a work, a work of art. It comes from the word that gives us the word poem. I know you've heard that before. It refers to a piece of literature, of literary workmanship. It came to refer to an author's magnum, magnum opus or his greatest literary achievement. In other words, it refers to his masterpiece. Isn't that amazing to think of us as God's masterpiece? Paul is saying that the redeemed saints 
of God are his masterpieces. The saints are his greatest achievement. The saints are the greatest work of the master potter as we sit on the wheel. The saints are the greatest letter ever written by the master author. And the redeemed saints of God are the result of God's loving grace. We are saved because He took the shapeless dead clay of our lives in His loving hands and He molded us into something new for His glory. With loving care and infinite skill, God shaped us by His grace and wrote His love into our lives. When we stop to think about the raw materials God had to work with, sinners, wretched people, it all becomes more incredible, doesn't it? The redeemed are God's love letters to a lost world. And Paul says it this way, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and ready, read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If you're saved, your life is God's love letter to the lost. He has written His love in you and on you. And through you, He tells this world what He loves. He loves sinners because His Son died to redeem them so that He can give them life-changing power in His grace. The Gospel is real. And Christ makes a difference in every life He redeems through the power of His blood. How do you like this? You are God's billboard upon which He writes His love for the lost. I started to think of myself, how big is my billboard? Is it a little post-it that I put on my refrigerator? Is it the sign I put on the side of my truck? Is it the sign that's outside that tells what Grace Bible is about? Or is it when you're driving down the freeway It's one of those massive billboards. Your life reflects God's grace. No artist paints a painting to hide and put it away in a closet. No sculptor fashions a sculpture just to hide it and appreciate it in himself. No writer pens a literary work to keep it away from the eyes of others. Every artist wants his painting to be seen by many. Every sculptor wants his work to be viewed by others, and every writer wants his words to be read by other people. God did not save us to sequester us within the walls of the church, but he saved us to display our masterpiece, his masterpiece to the world. If you are sitting here this morning and you've made that commitment, you are God's testimony to the people around you. What does the world say about your billboard? What does the world say about the book that you're writing? What does the world say about the art that you're creating? One commentator wrote this. Michelangelo was once asked what he was doing as he chipped away at a shapeless piece of rock. And he replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. Well, in a sense, that's what God is doing to us. 
He is slowly shaving, shaping, chiseling, sanding, forming. Because we are His workmanship, not our own. We were created, formed, as a child of God to express and display God's grace. When a sinner is saved, it's the greatest of all miracles. And it's the greatest demonstration of God's power. When God saves a sinner, a new person is formed. Something that never existed before into being, at that instance of salvation, a new creation. How many of us are still living in our old ways, yet God has created us anew? The redeemed souls are trophies of God's saving grace. The vast expanses of the heavens above, the sun and the moon and the stars, all stand as diligent testimonies to God's power in creation. But as surely as the stars, planets, sun, moon declare the existence and power of God, nothing declares His glory, His power, and His existence more than a life that has been redeemed by God's grace. Each one of us here this morning that have called Christ, who are saved by Him, each one of us are living testimonies. Not only here in this, these four walls, but in our workplace, in our homes, at the store, wherever we are, remember, you are God's presentation of who He is to the world that doesn't know Him. What are you presenting? What kind of grace are you exposing to the world? A devotional from our daily bread titled, Not by Works of Righteousness. Headline news in the Grand Rapids Press. Conversion to Hindu faith is torturous. The article stated, A West German businessman has completed his conversion to the Hindu faith by piercing himself through the cheeks with one quarter inch thick, four foot long steel rods and pulling a chariot for two miles by ropes attached to his back and his chest by steel hooks. Others walk through 20-foot-long pits of fire without shoes, or sit on beds of nails, or hang in the air from hooks. What a contrast to the reality of Christianity, the teaching of salvation by grace through faith apart from human works, distinguishes Christianity from all other religions of this world. The conversion experience of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not completed through acts of self-torture. We may have to suffer although we may have to suffer although for the cause of Christ and the good works, but it should always prove the genuineness of our faith. Self-inflicted torture is completely foreign to everything the Bible teaches about salvation. I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon tells of an occasion when he was writing home one evening after a hard day and feeling weary and depressed. And a verse came to his mind. A familiar verse that we all know. My grace is sufficient for you. He immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River, apprehensive lest drinking so many pints of water in the river each day might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames say to him, 
Drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. And then he thought of a little mouse in the granaries in Egypt, afraid lest it might, by daily consumption of the corn it needed, exhaust the supplies and starve to death. And Joseph comes along and, sensing its fear, he says, Cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. And then he brought, thought of a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere by breathing up there. And the Creator booms his voice out of heaven. Breathe away, old man. Fill your lungs. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. At the end of John Newton's life, he wrote, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. On his tombstone it reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. God's ultimate expression of grace was at the cross. His ultimate extension of grace was at the resurrection. We live each day in God's amazing grace. So the next time you hear the song played or sung, or sing it yourself, I hope that you have a deeper understanding of what the song is about. And that you will give it some thought when you sing the song Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you this morning for the, the, the power of your word, the presence of your word. Lord, I pray that everyone here this morning, wherever we are, Lord, you know each one of our hearts. But God, I pray through the incredible power of your grace, Lord, would you grant them salvation? Would you grant them repentance, Lord? Would you help them see their life as it really is? Regardless of how good or bad they are, it doesn't matter. We have an example of John Newton who is beyond what we would think is savable. But Lord, your grace reaches down deep into the depths of our humanity and our depravity and pulls us out of that muck, sets us upon the wheel, and by your hands we are shaped into your masterpieces. Lord, I pray for each of us who do know you, God, would you help us see in and of ourselves, are we allowing you to shape us and mold us into the masterpieces that you want? Father, help us surrender those things that would cause that to be hindered. But more than that, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. How sweet this sound as we sing our last song, Father. May our hearts be filled. In Jesus' name, amen.